uh, I ended up um, getting married on August the 1st uh, of that year and uh, starting at ORAU on August the 24th. Wow. Yeah. And I had a baby on August the 26th, the next oh. year. Oh, the next year. Okay. <laughs> I was like, dang. No, 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 no. Welcome to ORAU at 75, a special series celebrating ORAU's 75th anniversary from the creators of Further Together, the ORAU podcast. We stand on the shoulders of scientific pioneers like Dr. William G. Pollard and Dr. Alvin Weinberg, who built and grew what started as the Oak Ridge Institute for Nuclear Studies. Learn about the history of OREU through the words and memories of the scientific leaders, experts, and everyday people who have made OREU what it is today, a university consortium on the cutting edge of the nation's scientific enterprise. Happy Wednesday and welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. I'm your host, Michael Holtz. And this week we are launching the first of two episodes with Dr. Donna Craigle, who is a senior scientific advisor here at ORAU and who has been part of the ORAU culture for decades. Um, really interesting conversation how she got here, what she does for the organization, and really and truly how she's put science to work um, to build an incredible resume and an incredible life. Jenna and I had the opportunity to talk to Donna um, last summer and look forward to sharing this conversation with you. How did you first hear about Epidemiology. I know when most people, you know, go into college, there are pathways that you don't even know exist. Right, so right. how how did it first come onto your radar? Well, uh, that's a very interesting story. Um, I was in uh, getting my master's degree in human genetics, and I went to a conference on women in the workplace that was in Washington, D.C., and there were a lot of people talking about um, special illnesses that women had in the workplace and reproductive issues and things like that, and they were coming at it either from a purely um, medical side or a purely genetic side, but there wasn't anybody that was trying to marry those two things together uh, to look at genetic epidemiology. And so I thought, I just had this idea that it would be really cool to marry my master's degree with a degree that would let me look at both of those things kind of mm -hmm. together. Um, and so I, I went to the University of North Carolina. I had a friend that was in graduate school there. And um, I went for an interview um, in their, uh, I believe it was women in health program. And uh, the, the person that I spoke with said, well, you know, maybe it might be good for you to work in a daycare center for a year before you come. And I'm like, really? I don't think so. <laughs> Not what I had in mind. Uh, so maybe this isn't the right department. And so while I was there, I just hit up a couple other department heads because I was just a little pushy in those days. And so... Um, <laughs> So I, I went to the health education department and department head and spoke with them and it was a little bit better discussion, but they wanted me to do 
kind of something equally inane. And then my friend said, well, I had this great class in epidemiology last semester. Um, Professor Ibrahim is an awfully nice guy, and I bet you could just go talk to him. And so we went, I knocked, I talked to him, and I told him my idea about, you know, what had kind of come to my brain when I was at this conference. And he said, absolutely, you should apply, you should apply. And so um, I did, I got in, I got a public health scholarship. Uh, so I didn't have to pay tuition or anything else. And it was the beginning of a, of a wonderful relationship. And I never even knew the word epidemiology before I actually went there. And, and I was trying to tell people what I really wanted to do. And then I was like, oh, it's epidemiology. <laughs> <laughs> cool, that's yeah. very cool. Yeah. How did you, you said that you'd had a long interest in biology and math. How mm -hmm. was that fostered? Um, well, my father was a um, large animal biologist and he actually worked at on South Campus in those buildings down there when I grew up in Oak Ridge, uh, okay. doing large animal biology, uh, looking at the, um, if, if a dirty bomb, say, had been dropped on the United States and the cows ate the grass, what part of the cow could we still eat and not get sick? Mm. You know, like a fade and transport of radionuclides in the, in the agricultural system. And um, so from early on, he drug me out to the lab and, uh, you know, I got to watch him do large animal surgeries and and things like that and um and then when i was a junior he did a sabbatical at the university of wisconsin and he was in the genetics department and so i was like i was a junior i was really bored because i had left all my friends in tennessee right. and so um i started helping him like grade his genetics paper his freshman genetics papers and stuff like that and and truly in school um that was all I ever loved was math and science. Um, you, you could take history and throw it out the window. I <laughs> was not having any part of it. Um, and so uh, when I got to college, uh, I just said, I, I'm a biology major, like mm -hmm. when I was a freshman. And everybody was like, how do you know? And I said, I just do. And so I never wavered from that. Um, I graduated in three and a half years, thanks to some uh, AP credits from high school that carried over. And, um, and then after college, I really was in, in kind of a quandary what to do. Um, because I suddenly realized that with a degree in biology, you really can't do anything but teach. Um, you know, and you have to have a master's degree or something else. And so uh, I, I loved genetics. And so I applied to a couple genetics programs, got into the one at the um, Medical College of Virginia. And uh, I was going to get a PhD when I went there, but uh, the department was really new and um, had very limited perspectives. And so I decided to get my master's degree and then move on. And then I suddenly found epidemiology. <laughs> and Dr. Donna Craigle was born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, take us kind of through how you ended up at ORU. Oh, that's another funny story. Um, 
I was getting close to graduating from the University of North Carolina with my PhD, and I was at the summer meetings of the Society for Epidemiologic Research uh, that summer, and my major professor said, um, Donna, you're about to graduate, aren't you? And I said, well, like in a year or so. And he said, well, there's somebody over here um, that's looking for a that's recruiting for an epidemiologist and uh, you might want to talk with them. And so I went over and I met the person, his name was Denny Parsick, and he was actually at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, which I thought was really funny since I had grown up in Oak Ridge and graduated from Oak Ridge High School and had spent 10 years uh, all over the place, anywhere but Oak Ridge. Right. And um, and so I spoke with him and he said, well, uh, we need to get you to come for an interview. And so uh, this was in the summer. So I came in January for the interview and uh, uh, it went very well. And while I was there for the interview, um, a friend of mine from graduate school was actually doing her dissertation at ORAQ. And so I stayed with her and her husband while I was there, and they had a uh, casino party on Saturday night with all the ORAU people. And at the casino party, I met Dr. Lushbaugh. And Dr. Lushbaugh said, why don't you just stay and come on Monday and interview at ORAU? And <laughs> I said, well, um, I wouldn't feel good about that because ORNL paid for my trip to Oak Ridge. And, um, and I said, why don't I come back next month? And um, so I did. And in reality, I had just had to buy a new car. And the travel allowance to and from Oak Ridge was like a car payment. And so nice. I thought, well, <laughs> I'll just come back um, for another interview. And plus, it relieves me of the moral responsibility of, of you know, using ORNL's travel money. Mm -hmm. And so I came back um, in February, probably interviewed. And uh, Dr. Lushbaugh called me and offered me the job. And I said, well, you know, I can't come until August because I'm still working on my dissertation and I'll never finish it if I come right now. And he said, that's fine. And he said, if you want to come for a week or a couple of days, anywhere in between, we'll pay you. It'll be fine. And so uh, I ended up um, getting married on August the 1st uh, of that year and uh, starting at ORAU on August the 24th. Wow. Yeah. And I had a baby on August the 26th, the next oh. year. Oh, the next year. Okay. <laughs> I was like, dang. Right. That's a lot packed into one <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, and, and that was, uh, that worked out great. So, um, and, and so I never had envisioned staying at ORAU for my entire career, but, um, as it turned out, uh, the longer I was there, the more things changed. And the more the program morphed from what it started out to be, which was looking at mortality patterns and Department of Energy workers to looking at illness patterns, you know, getting closer and closer to um, a disease that was close to the time where the exposure started. You know, when you're, when you're looking at mortality patterns, you're looking 30, 40, 50 years 
years away. And it's really hard to tease out some of that, although you can get some good hypotheses. But um, now a lot of the work has changed to be illness programs, like our National Supplemental Screening Program, where we do medical examinations on former Department of Energy workers and try to determine if they have diseases that can uh, be related to their exposures. And so that changed. And then, um, you know, the unfortunate times where the funding went down uh, significantly in the early 90s, it was an opportunity to, um, to try to figure out how could we keep our core group together uh, with funding because we had such great specific knowledge of the Department of Energy workforce. And so um, I think we put in five uh, grant or contract applications and we won four of them. And I almost had a nervous breakdown when they came and told me that we had won the fourth one. And I just remember sitting in my office and thinking, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how we're going to do this. Um, And then thinking, no, this is a good thing. We need to figure this out. Uh, And so um, that was definitely a huge growth period for me. Um, And in terms of uh, budgets and projects, because prior to that, we had just had the one Department of Energy contract. And uh, quite honestly, when I became the, the head of that group, I said something to the, um, the budget controller that we had at that time. And I'm like, oh, no, I, I said something to uh, my predecessor who was retiring. And I said, um, what, what should I know about the budgets? What, what, how do I watch them? What should I do? And that person said, well, um, you know, so-and-so, your budget analyst will let you know when there's a problem. And so one month, the the budget pages came over and on the bottom, in very nice script, it said, this is looking a little scary. (laughs) (laughs) A month in. (laughs) And I'm like, what do I do with that? You know, I just had no idea. Um, And so, you know, for for me, again, with my love of math and and things like that, um, I figured out how never to get that message sent to me again (laughs) uh, and how to stay much more on top of it. Uh, And so um, so all through the time that I've been there, it's just been learning and and retreading, reinventing. um, And and to me, that's wonderful. Uh, It's just never been the same thing twice. And then uh, also in the early 90s, uh, I got the opportunity to work with the uh, people that were in the cytogenetics laboratory because their funding was going down to retread that lab as a beryllium laboratory. And uh, again, it was a learning process. Uh, Gail Littlefield was amazing in working to get that test stood up in the laboratory. And, um, and also for me, uh, it fed my love of biological sciences. And so it got me back into a laboratory setting, looking at things growing and cells reacting. And so I had the, you know, the mathematical side, I had the illness side, and now I had a lab side uh, to, to get back in there. And so again, um, 
I just really enjoyed that. And, and today that is one of the things that I continue to do is to um, be the director of the Brilliant Laboratory, review all their tests. Um, I'm there every day for them to answer questions, um, to um, look over tests that are particularly quirky and, and work through some of those things. Donna, for folks who don't know what the Beryllium Lab is, talk about, I mean, that's, it's a pretty um, novel and important part of, I know, your work, but our work as an organization. Okay. Um, what is the Beryllium Lab and why is it important? Well, the, the Beryllium Lab does a test called the Beryllium Lymphocyte Proliferation Test. And the Department of Energy is unique, uh, somewhat unique, in its use of a metal beryllium in a lot of their um, pieces and parts of things. And uh, many of them are classified, which is why I call them pieces and parts of things. Right. But um, <clears throat> if, if you breathe in that material into your lungs, uh, you can get a, a disease called chronic beryllium disease. And it's, it has a genetic basis, uh, which means about maybe only about 30% of the people that come in contact with it really react to it badly. And uh, if they do, they start to form um, white cells um, around the, the particles to try to wall them off from the system. And they turn into granulomas, which are kind of benign nodules. And then that turns into scar tissue and then they cannot breathe any longer. And so um, it, it was thought to be a dead disease uh, in the um, early 80s because the, the acceptable exposure levels had gone down so significantly. But then um, Dr. Lee Newman, at, who is at National Jewish, uh, had a patient from Rocky Flats who he thought maybe this is beryllium disease. Mm -hmm. And so he developed the test, which actually looks at people's circulating lymphocytes. And those are the things that give you your immune response. And he incubated them in the laboratory in different concentrations of beryllium. And if the person was sensitized to beryllium, then the lymphocytes grew a lot faster than those that were not exposed to uh, beryllium. So he put some control wells in the lab with no beryllium, and then he put a couple of concentrations and grew them. And basically, if the cells exposed to beryllium grow about two times faster than those that aren't, that person has a response to beryllium and is uh, at much higher risk of developing beryllium disease, depending on how much they breathed into their lungs. And when we first started doing the test, there were five labs in the United States that did it. Uh, right now, there are really only two that are doing it commercially. Our laboratory, and when I say commercially, um, I, I don't mean that we go out and, and market our ability, but um, we have many clients, most of whom are Department of Energy uh, facilities, but um, there are a few others that are doing cleanup work, uh, and, and things of that sort. So uh, the other laboratory is at National Jewish um, in Denver. And uh, the Cleveland Clinic also does tests, but they don't, they mostly just do research amounts of tests. So, um, so our laboratory has really um, blossomed over the years in terms of, you know, how many tests we do. Um, we're probably up near 200 tests a week uh, if this COVID stuff would ever 
kind of relinquish the United States back to normality. Um, but, uh, you know, still, it's, it's a great need for the Department of Energy to continue this testing. Uh, and other industries use beryllium as well. You know, you can get uh, golf clubs with beryllium. You can get mountain bikes with beryllium. It's, it's a hugely strong metal, and um, it's very, very light. So it has a lot of other uses. And I know we've done, I think this is correct, we've done outreach in other communities like in Pennsylvania and elsewhere to yes. mm -hmm. um, invite people to be tested because they may yes. have been exposed in their workplace. Right. The Department of Energy had what they called the vendor program. Um, and uh, they, when they were really using a lot of beryllium, there were a lot of small vendors that would sell the beryllium to them in whatever form or format that they wanted it. And uh, many of those vendors went out of business. And uh, so therefore, people that were exposed to beryllium under DOE contracts didn't have any way to get the test. And the test costs about $250 uh, okay. a piece. So uh, a lot of people couldn't even pay for one for themselves if they wanted one. And so DOE said that anyone that worked at, at a specific list of former vendors uh, that were now out of business could come to us and get the test. And we still get a couple a year um, finding us. We, we had made significant outreach to a number of large places. And I think we've run through the bulk of, of those individuals, but um, word of mouth still, uh, and of course it's on the DOE website as well, uh, how to find us. Donna, you've been part of standing up some pretty amazing programs. I mean, the Beryllium Lab and then the NSSP program and NIOSH, which I know mm -hmm. you're still um, heavily involved in. Talk about, um, and I know all of those sort of relate to your epidemiology background. So they're, yeah. you know, um, talk about the importance of those programs um, you mentioned the contracts in the 90s. Was that part of standing up the, the National Supplemental Screening Program? Mm -hmm. okay. um, it, actually, the National Supplemental Screening Program was the next um, iteration of those. Um, in the early 90s, we won a contract with the state of Tennessee to do quality control on their birth defects and cancer registries. And so each year for three years, uh, we had to send teams out to every hospital in Tennessee to review their um, primary care records and compare them to what had been reported to the registry and then, and then give them suggestions on how to make their registry more um, uh, collect better data okay. and so that was a little bit far afield from but but we won it nonetheless uh i think that was the one that nearly made me cry um, <laughs> <laughs> um we won a um a study in conjunction with emory university to do um medical surveillance on people who had worked with mercury at the y12 facility because they had worked with um mercury so huge so much huge levels of mercury and uh, to see if they had any residual peripheral neuropathies uh, 30 to 40 years after their exposure had ended uh, and so we we did that um, and then we actually won a contract with 
uh, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, to uh, do the same work that we had done for DOE. And because NIOSH was now in charge of our DOE work, but they needed technical support to be able to continue the program. And so we continued to collect death certificates, um, assemble data sets for them for their analyses and things of that sort. So those were some of the, the first round. And then um, as those started to wind down, um, is when we looked at the National Supplemental Screening Program. Uh, we won that in 2005. So right. that, was, um, that was a little bit later. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think what year, I, I can't recall exactly. Oh, 2002 is when we won the uh, NIOSH contract. Okay. So 2002, 2005, uh, you know, those big additions to, uh, to our work. And, um, you know, the, the NIOSH came from the fact that it was dose reconstruction. And ORAU in the early years of our mortality studies had had to reconstruct radiation doses in order to do the mortality studies that we did and published. And so we had been all over the Department of Energy complex collecting uh, exposure records, learning about how the exposures were measured, what were the good things about the bad things about that. And so uh, it just made us be in a really good place in terms of our knowledge base to win that first NIOSH contract. Um, and even though it really didn't, um, it was mostly in the hardcore area of dust reconstruction and not really to do with health uh, because the Department of Labor uh, adjudicated that part of the, of the claims process. So we didn't have to determine whether this person really did have lung cancer um, and things like that. We just strictly stuck to the dose reconstruction. Um, and then the National Supplemental Screening Program, same thing. Because of our history, and our, that program um, includes workers from all across the DOE complex, no matter where they worked. And we have a few uh, facilities that are ours strictly to screen, but there are also four other groups that participate in what they call the former worker programs for DOE. Okay. And those groups, uh, by and large, have one or two facilities that they concentrate on and that's it. Uh, and so if the person has moved across the country, then they fall into the NSSP. And so again, our DOE-wide knowledge base that we put together in the, in the late 70s and early 80s uh, stood us in really good stead to put that program together, uh, plus our um, ability to think nationally. Because uh, there in between, uh, DOE had also had us do a national beryllium screening program where uh, we, we screened maybe 2,500 beryllium workers a year all across the United States, finding them from all facilities where they had worked. And so, again, this global knowledge of DOE led us to be a great competitor for the NSSP. Okay. Um, and it's all, I know, amazing work. I've had a chance to talk with Dr. Newman about the NSSP and, you know, how um, passionate, you know, he and the team in, in Arvada yes. are about their work. Yes. And I know that you are as well. Yes. Um, so it's pretty amazing stuff. 
It is. I mean, it's the the NSSP. It just inspires passion in everyone uh, because it does so much good for so many people. Uh, And it is literally the only program that um, when I was still going to headquarters, you know, speaking with one of the people at headquarters and uh, complimenting them on the continued funding and how hard they worked to make sure that the that the funding for the former worker programs was basically untouchable and and how passionate we were and this doe person got a little teary-eyed and really? yes because they loved the program equally and so uh, to me it just if that felt that was a great feeling moment well, and like you said, it does so much good because not only are you, you know, you're basically tracking the health of, you know, former workers and letting mm-hmm. them know, right, you know, sort of where they are and you know. right, and in many cases, um, making them aware that there is compensation mm-hmm. that they didn't even think about being a possibility. Yeah, and that definitely can be an important issue for a lot of people facing health issues. So Uh that was part one of our conversation with Dr. Donna Craigle. We will launch the second part of this conversation in our next episode. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening to ORAU at 75, a special series celebrating ORAU's 75th anniversary. To learn more about our history, visit the About section of our website, ORAU.org, and scroll down to Our History.